my dad has a cabin in Colorado and we were up there. Hugo loved the cabin, loved it. This is one of his favorite places to be. And we were sitting in the living room and it has this beautiful panoramic view of the Collegiate Peaks area. And I turned to my daughter and I said, I wish Hugo were here. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? She said, mama, he is here. I was like, oh, here I was experiencing this beautiful moment and also feeling disconnected from him. And she's right there in the same room with me experiencing the same moment, except that she's feeling connected to him because she decided to believe he was there. And I didn't know that was an option for me at that moment. So it doesn't have to be this complicated thing. Sometimes it's just deciding to believe that they are with you, that they are there. Mama! Let's reimagine mom life together. Mama Has Goals is your hub for relatable support and helpful resources that help you fuel yourself alongside motherhood. Your identity is bigger than mom. And whatever your goals are, together, we're making them a reality. I can't even tell you why people have to experience the horrible things in life that they do. But what I do hope that we talk about here on this podcast is how we can support each other through them. Because unfortunately, life gives us variables sometimes that are extremely difficult, extremely hard, and extremely heavy. But you're not alone. And there are people in support and resources and community that can help you through that. And our guest today, Krista St. Germain, is a master certified life coach, grief expert, widow, mom, and the host of the Widowed Mom podcast. When her husband was killed by a drunk driver in 2016, Krista's life was completely flipped upside down. And while it would have been easy to believe that her best days were behind her, thankfully, Krista discovered life coaching and post-traumatic growth. And not only was she able to move forward and create a life and a future that she could get excited about, she now coaches and teaches other widows so they can love life again, too. We talk about her journey, her process, her struggles, the things that she found light in again, how people supported her, what things were not as helpful how she navigated life and communicated with her kids. We also talk about just from the standpoint of a life coach and not as much from grief, some things she's implemented into her life as a mom and as a woman to support herself, how to have fun again, and how to really just get back to living life while keeping the spirit of those that we've lost or the things that we've lost with us as we grow and evolve and live. I absolutely loved this episode. I absolutely loved this conversation. So grab those headphones or get ready to listen. We are, of course, talking about heavy topics, but we're keeping it fairly light. So while this may bring things up for you, this is an important conversation that we should all have for ourselves and to support those around us. So let's dive in. Krista, I'm so excited to have you here today. One of the things that's so important to me in this community is being able to have the hard conversations. It isn't always that you walk up to someone and you talk about what you're going through and it's always a really heavy subject and you just lead with that and you say, hey, here's what I'm going through. Do you know anyone that can support me? And I am super excited to bring people like you onto the podcast to support not just the real conversations, but also share your story. So thank you for being here. And I'd love to just start there. I know there are so many layers and we're going to unpack that. Why don't you bring us up to speed over the last seven years of where we're at here today? Yeah, right. There's a lot to unpack as you say that. So 
I'm Krista St. Germain, and I am a master certified coach. And specifically, I work with widowed moms and help them figure out how to love life again. And I do that work because that was my journey. It's like we hear that a lot, right? The journey that um, we go on is the one we ultimately end up helping other people with. And when I was 40, I was kind of at this period of life that felt like a real high to me. I had been divorced and then remarried, and it was like redemption story, relationship of my dreams. Everything was just amazing. And we were coming back from a trip, and we had driven separately on the trip. I had a flat tire. We were so close to home, too. I pulled over on the shoulder of the highway. He pulled over behind me. Typical stubborn man that he was, he said, I don't want to wait on AAA. I just want to, let me just change the tire myself. Let's get home faster. So I'm standing on the side of the road and I'm texting my daughter who was 12 at the time to tell her that we would be late so she would know. And a driver that we later found out had meth and alcohol in his system did not see our hazard lights, did not break. And it was like 5.30 on a Sunday. So it was daylight and crashed right into the back of Hugo's car and trapped him in between his car and my car. So within 24 hours, we made it to the hospital and he ultimately died there. But within 24 hours, what felt like a dream life to me and my best days were in front of me, the rug just got ripped out from under me and it was kind of all taken away. And therapy was really, really helpful for me in the beginning in those early days where I just needed to get it out and make sense of it and talk about it. But I kind of reached this point where I call it a grief plateau now, where I couldn't find the resources that I needed. And what I was hearing was things like, oh, you're doing so great and you're so strong and I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, really? I don't think this is what strong feels like. Like, I, yes, I'm functioning and yes, I'm back to work. And yes, the kids are getting to their activities and everybody's eating, but I don't feel good. So if this is what great looks like, I think <laughs> Houston, we have a problem, right? And it was kind of at that point where my therapist was like, I don't think you need therapy anymore. I found life coaching. Long story short, I found a coach and it wasn't grief specific, but it was the kinds of tools that I needed to help me understand how to learn to think on purpose and how to just not believe the thoughts that were in my brain about how my best days were behind me and I should just be grateful for what I had. And so kind of the combination of life coaching and then reading everything I could read about grief and like piecemealing it all together was what I really did need. And when I figured that out for myself, I decided I don't want other people to struggle as much as I struggled. So I quit my job and I certified as a coach and I decided that's what I want to do is help other widows who are struggling in the way that I was because most people aren't willing to have these conversations like you are, right? And so we right. go into grief experiences and we don't know what we need to know and we aren't prepared and then we struggle. And I don't want people to struggle that much. So that's what I do. How would you explain to someone that's never spoke to either a life coach or a therapist the difference between therapy mm. and a life coach? Yeah. I hate to overgeneralize. I would say that life coaching tends to be more forward focused, tends to be less focused about what happened in your past and more about, okay, this is what happened in your past now. What do you want to think right about it? What do you want to think about yourself? My style of life coaching is not super action oriented, meaning I'm not an accountability coach. I'm really interested in helping people change their relationship with their feelings and change their relationship with their thinking so that they can show up in life the way that they want. And so for the widows that I work with, you know, there's a lot of feelings that they aren't used to navigating and are sometimes avoiding or using coping mechanisms to get away from. And so we do a lot of work on that. And then there's all kinds of thoughts that they have about themselves and what they're capable of. 
and what's ahead of them versus what's behind them. Confidence, those kinds of things are what I'm helping them with. I really want people to be able to love life again, not just get used to the new normal, because that's what I was told, right? Just get used to the new normal, but actually, no, what is it that I value in life? What's in my way? Let's remove that so I can go live that life that I want. And the death of my spouse doesn't have to stop me from that. Yeah. It's just a different life now. Yeah. And so therapy and life coaching, they bring different things to the table and they help you work through and into a new version of yourself, right? Or like you said, find that purpose, find that reason for what's next for how you want to show up for your life. If someone was trying to decide, okay, I'm looking for support, I want to step into one, would you recommend that you do one first? Can they go alongside each other? Every situation, every person's story is going to be so different for that answer. And I totally understand that. But With your clients, have you seen that it works better to work through anything prior to coming to you? So I specifically run a group coaching program. So I'm very particular about where I work with people. And it was different back in the days when I did one-on-one coaching because then I could flex and bend to whatever was going on with that one person. But in a group container, it's a little bit different. So I am really best positioned to help someone who is in that grief plateau place, meaning they're past early acute grief and it is not linear. And there are no stages. And even as I say it, I cringe. Mm -hmm. But what I mean by that is they're back to functioning. Like they're no longer celebrating taking a shower, which in the early days of grief, for some of us, that is what we're celebrating, Mm -hmm. right? We've come to terms with it in that we don't need to keep talking about it to make it real. We know it's real, right? And we're ready to think about it differently. The widow fog or grief fog has subsided to the point where we can actually watch a video and fill out a worksheet and process it, right? In early grief, for me, I couldn't do any of those things. I couldn't read and retain. I just needed somebody who was unbiased, who would let me verbally vomit, right, and talk about it. There are many times traumatic aspects to a loss, right? I'm not doing EMDR with people. I do bring in a tapping specialist, but primarily my expertise is not through the lens of trauma. Mm -hmm. Again, it is different for every person. And I don't want to make blanket statements, but I've never found a conflict where someone was doing therapy and coaching at the same time. And it was a problem. But sometimes I've had to slow people down and say, okay, this is a little bit too much too soon for you. Come back to me when the cognitive processing is there a little bit more and you don't feel like your whole world just exploded because what I'm offering is pretty comprehensive and I don't want to overwhelm people. Yeah. And there's a sweet spot for that. And I love that you do group coaching because it brings in that community layer, right? Knowing that you have other people that you're connecting with because I think the biggest thing that we see is when you're grieving, not everyone's grief journey looks the same and we know that, right? But when someone's maybe a part of your life alongside that experience, they're kind of expecting different things out of you and they're going through their own grief journey. And so for you to have someone that understands but isn't a part of your day-to-day life, I could see being so powerful. What are some of the ways that you do check in with the people in your life? What are some of the things that were hurtful and helpful for you in your community, your family, even your kids when you were really in the beginning grief stages? Mm, That's such a good question. I think people worry so much about how to help someone who is grieving. We worry so much about, are we going to do it right? Are we going to mess it up? So some of the things that were really helpful for me were when people just kind of jumped in, I really Mm -hmm. appreciated that looking back. So one of my great friends, um, Melanie, she just kind of appointed herself like my spokesperson. 
she didn't really even ask. She just decided she was going to run point for me, which I really appreciated. So she just told people like, you need to coordinate something, coordinate it through me and let me handle it. So all the meal train things, you know, all of that. She coordinated school supplies for my kids. It was time to go back to school, right? We were about to go school supply shopping. She just handled it, right? Somebody came over and just started mowing my lawn. Acts of service, right? Because you don't exactly know what a person needs, but you can just start doing things. And so that was really refreshing to me when people did that. Um, Also, it was really helpful when people didn't put an expectation on me, but just would come and sit with me. I appreciated that. I had a friend that came and she said, you know, do you just want to go to the bookstore and I'll just take you and we'll go to like Barnes and Noble and we'll just get a coffee. And it wasn't with the expectation that I talk about it. It was just another human being present with me that was so valuable. Some of the things that didn't help in hindsight, I understand people really were just uncomfortable with negative emotion. But every time someone would say something that was rather minimizing, something like, oh, he's in a better place, or oh, you're young, you'll find someone else, or there's other fish in the sea, he wouldn't want you to be sad. Those kinds of things that people say, they say them because they see that you're in pain and they don't have a tolerance for that and they don't know what to do about it. And so they try to say things that will take away your pain. I used to do that too. And what I realized is that actually when you're the one in pain, you really just want someone to acknowledge your pain. You don't want them to try to take it away. You just want them to say things like, this sucks and I'm so sorry and I love you and I'm here and not feel better. It's okay. Count your blessings. That just, ugh, so minimizing. And also I think for a long time people were so worried that they would remind me of the loss as though I had forgotten about it. You Mm -hmm. know. Like Hugo and I worked together at the same company and he'd been there for 20 years. I'd only been there for 10. So a lot of our coworkers had known him longer than they knew me. And I think they wanted to say something, but they were afraid that if they did, then it would remind me and I looked like I was doing well and they didn't want to like upset the apple cart. But the truth was I was actually thinking about it all the time. And it was so helpful actually and comforting when other people acknowledged that they were also thinking of it. But sometimes what it took was for me to start. We would be in a meeting and I would crack a joke about him or bring up a memory. And then eventually they started to get that, oh, actually she wants us to talk about him, right? Because that was really helpful to me. So, you know, other people's feelings aren't problems to solve. We don't need to try to say things to make them feel better. It's usually not received all that well. And pretty much guarantee that person is thinking about the loss much more than you are. So it's not a problem if you bring it up. It's actually usually very welcomed. Yeah. What did the process look like with your children? What was the dynamic Mm. there? Uh, Well, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done is telling them what happens. Hugo had a son that was not my son. It was his son from his first marriage. And he was 17 at the time that it happened. So he was actually at the hospital with us and in the intensive care unit and watching. I mean, they did CPR for like an hour. But unfortunately, he saw the worst of that and watched his dad die. And that was really hard on him. My two children were 12 and 9 at the time. I did not have them at the hospital, so they did not see any of it. But just telling them, I remember telling them to come home and sending my parents to go and get them. And of course, they knew there had been an accident and they knew something was wrong, but it was just really hard to tell them. For my daughter, who was the older one, she could understand what she lost in the future, Mm -hmm. right? She knew 
that Hugo was going to teach her French and he was going to teach her how to snow ski and he was going to teach her how to water ski and he was going to help her with her math homework. And she saw the potential of what had been lost compared to my nine-year-old who really just experienced loss for the first time. And he went into a, oh, my mom could die. Other people I love could die. Like this has never happened before. I remember one time I was tucking him into bed and he said, mommy, if you die, I want to die five minutes before or five minutes after something like that, because I don't want to be in a world if you're not there. You know, that was his realization was people die and hers was a little bit different. They did well, all things considered, but it was different for both of them for sure. Yeah. And that's not their biological father though, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. Hugo was their stepfather. Yeah. So now you've been with your partner for three years and how Mm -hmm. did transitioning not just as a woman going to date again, that Mm -hmm. layer for one, then two, introducing someone else into your family. Let's talk about that transition. You know, it helps if you have a podcast. (laughs) By the time I started dating, actually, even before our first date, he had researched me and he had listened to episodes of my podcast. And my podcast is called The Widowed Mom Podcast. So he kind of already, it sounds creepy, but it really wasn't. It was actually really helpful because I didn't have to explain a lot of that background biographical data that people do. I went into it with the attitude of not dating until I really wanted to, until it felt like a fun thing for me to do. And I did a lot of work just getting myself to a place where I truly believed I had everything I needed and I was complete and that dating felt like something fun to go and do, but I wasn't trying to find my missing piece, you know? So I went in it pretty abundantly. And right before COVID is when we started dating, I literally decided, I think I'm ready. I created a Bumble profile. I chatted with some people. I went out with him and that was it. Like we hit it off and then went into a little COVID bubble and just kind of never came out. But because I was so upfront, I think, about the loss and because I didn't tiptoe around it, that set the tone, right? I would never want to be with someone who didn't appreciate Hugo's role in my life or tried to minimize it because he died, right? I didn't choose for that to happen. And I want him to be still part of our lives. I want to remember him. We want to tell stories about him. And dating again means that somebody else has to also hold space for that and let that be okay and not be threatened by that. And that's what I attracted. Did you have the podcast prior to becoming a life coach? Did they kind of come to life together? Mm -mm. No, I was actually a coach for about a year and a half before I started the podcast. I was afraid of shiny objects. And so I just decided, now I'm going to build the coaching business. And then when I get the coaching business to a certain point, then I'll start the podcast. And so I did. But I didn't start dating until it's been six, almost seven years since Hugo died. And I was two and a half years in before I started dating. So yeah, I think I had started the podcast probably about nine months before I started dating maybe. And so life coaching, while you're taking your experience, you also are certified. And so you're really supporting that specific person where podcasting puts it a little bit more back on you. So what did that kind of process look like of going from really coaching and supporting others and being there for that to then having the podcast come back kind of into your story? Was there any moments that it felt triggering or extra difficult? 
what has been surprising for you when it comes to supporting others and sharing your journey to the world? It, in the beginning, was a little challenging because I have had perfectionist tendencies, right? Like wanting to tell it all perfectly or make it be super polished and obsessing over that. And that didn't last all that long because you quickly find that A, nobody wants you to be super polished and B, like you're going to torture yourself if you take that long to tell your story and create it. And so, you know, what really helped me is just imagining a person that I'm talking to or like a small group of people that I'm talking to. So it doesn't really feel that different to me than talking to a client in a coaching session. What I know about storytelling is that, you know, that's what really helps people. And so the more I can tell stories, the more relatable it is, the more helpful it is. And so I do a lot of that. I tend to wait to tell stories until I feel like I'm kind of on the other side of whatever it is, right? So I don't tell if it's super fresh. But as my life has changed, I told the story of dating as I went through it. I let my listeners follow my journey because I think it's helpful and I'm pretty transparent in that way. But yeah, it's taken some getting used to. I look back at my old podcast notes and I have every single word written out. Now I'm just like, three bullet points, go. Yeah. And it's hard because when you start and you're listing that out, like you said, you have these perfection tendencies of saying, okay, I want to make sure I do this right. But sharing your life and sharing your journey, what we all come to learn is there's no way to do it right. And there's no one way to do it. And it's really just about being authentic and allowing yourself to share and support so many people. Is there a story that you can share with us that you've seen someone overcome the other side? For those that are maybe not there yet, they're in it still and they're like, this sounds great. I just don't know if I ever will feel better, quote unquote, again. What are some ways that you can pour some hope into that person? I have so many stories. It's hard to pick one. I would just say, generally speaking, I know it seems like the world is going to end and you can't possibly imagine how you could ever be happy again, let alone happier and love your life. But it really does not have to do with somebody being a special snowflake. You really can take what you've learned in life and apply it and create a life that's even more aligned with what you care about, right? Mm -hmm. So it's possible for everyone. It's not just the special snowflakes doing it. I guess Jamie always comes to mind because she's on my team now. My operations manager came to me early in our time together. It was probably about, I don't know, four years ago. And she said, hey, my cousin, her husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and stage four. He's in the process of dying. And at some point, I think she's going to need the program. And at that point, I was only doing one-on-one coaching. And just when I started doing group coaching, which is several years ago, she was ready. And so she came in totally not knowing anything about coaching just knowing that her cousin said, this person can help you, right? And she came in really just not believing she could be an effective solo parent. She didn't think she could handle it. And she had two young girls at the time. And she just didn't think she could do life without Eric. And so she came in, she did the program six months long. She stayed. She didn't want to leave. She did the master's program, ultimately ended up quitting her job as a civil engineer and coming to work for me. And now she's a mentor in the program. And, you know, it's just such an example of, of what is possible doing amazingly well with her two girls, fully parenting teenagers, confidently doing it, out there dating again, happy again. I have tons of stories of women like that, which is why I say it's not a person, right? It's possible for all of us. We just have to decide and then get the support that we need. When you go through that transition and you start to 
see light again and feel alive again. What are some ways that you continue to keep that person that you've lost? Or, you know, one of the things that I love that you talk about too is grief isn't always about a person that you've lost, but it could be about anything that you feel that you've lost. How do you introduce that back into your life and keep it a part of your life? Like you were saying, you still want to tell stories about your ex-husband and you still want him to be a part of your lives. What are some things that have worked really well to keep him here? Yeah, I think it's just great to know that, you know, the bonds continue with loved ones, right, long past their death. And that's something that we create with the way that we relate to them, even though they aren't physically present anymore. So we can always still feel connected to them, even if they aren't actually here. I remember when this was really illustrated to me, we were up in the mountains. My dad has a cabin in Colorado and we were up there. Hugo loved the cabin, loved it. This is one of his favorite places to be. And we were sitting in the living room and it has this beautiful panoramic view of the Collegiate Peaks area. And I turned to my daughter and I said, I wish Hugo were here. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? She said, Mama, he is here. I was like, oh. Here I was experiencing this beautiful moment and also feeling disconnected from him. And she's right there in the same room with me experiencing the same moment, except that she's feeling connected to him because she decided to believe he was there. And I didn't know that was an option for me at that moment, right? So it doesn't have to be this complicated thing. Sometimes it's just deciding to believe that they are with you, that they are there. So for me, that is, I talk to him sometimes. I used to write to him all the time. Sometimes still I'll... (laughs) bounce ideas off of him. He's not here, right? But I'm doing that in my mind, telling stories about him, telling jokes about him. Pictures are around, recognizing holidays. Always, he's a big red wine drinker. Always have a glass of red wine on his birthday. You know, things like that just help keep him present. So it's different for every person, right? My way is not the right way, but what feels really good to me is to involve him in stories and just keep him top of mind. Yeah. Something I wish we did a better job in society as is being able to share the things that we've navigated in life with people that we're not Mm -hmm. sitting down and learning over years their story, right? So when you're grabbing your coffee from someone or you're in the grocery store, you're not going to be able to unpack all of this to that person right there, right? But should it come up in conversation and you explain that you've lost your ex-husband or his name comes up and then they ask about him and you say, oh, he's actually not here anymore. What is a response that you mm-hmm. wish people would say other than just, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry for your loss? Is there something better to support ongoing when that's heard? One thing that I've heard before is someone say, can you tell me another story about them? Is that something you would like mm-hmm. to hear? And is there anything else? Yeah, I I do actually love it when people ask things about him. What was he like? What was your favorite memory? What do you remember most about him? What would I have liked about him? Like assuming that they don't know him, but show me that they're interested in knowing him. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. But honestly, I don't, I get it. It's awkward. It's okay. We just also need to not beat ourselves up when we don't know what to say. Like it's okay if we (laughs) don't have to be perfect. And so I just hope people give themselves some grace for that little awkward moment. But yeah, tell me about them. What was a favorite memory? What were they like? I think would be something I would have loved to hear, but I can count on one hand the times that I've heard that. And that's usually because I'm in grief spaces. Well, I hope we can normalize some more of those conversations. 
talking about normalizing conversations of depth, I know you specifically coach widowed moms, but how do you implement some of the skills that you've learned as a life coach as a mom to your children? Are there certain things that Mm. you've been sure to implement, whether it's rituals or habits or conversation standards in your home? What are some of your favorite things that any mom could apply? Yeah, probably the biggest one is just role modeling, right? Especially as it relates to emotion, just taking responsibility for my own emotions and role modeling what's that, not hiding my emotions or giving them the idea that it's a problem. My my youngest, since he was a baby, I swear he's so little, he would always say things like, mommy, you look sad. Mommy, what can I do to make you happy? And so helping him understand, hey, buddy, like it's not your fault that I'm sad. It's okay that I'm sad. Sad is part of being human and it's okay, but you don't have to fix it. You know, your job is to make you happy. My job is to make me happy. And so having conversations that help my children understand that my emotions are not their fault, right? And my emotions aren't problems and vice versa, I think has been very useful. I definitely don't coach without permission. Yes. I, I will hear about it if I do, but I really just think it's more about how I say and what I role model and that they just pick it up Yeah, without me really doing a whole lot of teaching, to be honest. Yeah. And outside of the grief aspect, are there things that you've implemented into your life just in general that really help you operate to the best of your ability? Do you have any routines or ways that you connect with yourself to make sure you're taking care of you first? Yeah. I mean, tapping is probably one of my favorite routines and things that I do. I absolutely love tapping for a variety of reasons. So I use it when I've got an intense emotion that I want to process. I will just start tapping and sometimes it's not like the full basic recipe, but sometimes it'll just be side of hand or collarbone. And I'm lightly aware of tapping, but for our listeners that aren't, can you backtrack a little bit and give us a little bit more background? Absolutely. Yeah. Tapping is also called emotional freedom technique. And essentially what it is You're tapping on acupressure points on your body. It's a way of calming your central nervous system and telling your nervous system that you're safe. So when you're feeling really emotional, like so emotional that you can't think, right, you essentially start tapping and side of hand, sometimes called the karate chop point if you were going to chop something, that part of your hand. And it's really gentle and easy. So it's just tapping on the side of your hand and you would say something like, you know, even though I feel so angry right now, it's okay for me to love and accept myself. You say that a few times and then you just start tapping on these different energy meridians, acupressure points, so eyebrow, side of eye, under eye, and so on. You can YouTube it. There's an app called The Tapping Solution, which is brilliant for beginners. And what you notice is that initially it might feel a little more intense, whatever the emotion is, but pretty quickly it will dissipate and you will start to feel like you're more calm. It's like a stress button for me. Cortisol, you know, levels drop, stress hormone. I taught my kids tapping when they were little. We used to tap before bedtime. Yeah. Even if it was just like, let it go, let it go, let it go. So tapping's always been a a part of my self-care practice since I learned about it. And then also it's great for when I'm trying to switch beliefs, right? So sometimes, because it's not so intellectual, it's more of a bottom up instead of like a top down kind of experience. So I can tap on um, having a hard time making a decision, even though I don't know what to do. It's okay for me to love and accept myself. And I'll just tap on, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And eventually what happens is that I process the fear that I'm feeling 
and then something else opens, right? And it's like, oh, well, maybe I know some things I might like to do, right? So it's another way to get at the sort of cognitive coaching that I do. And it just feels really approachable to me and authentic to me. And I love it. I love it. And it also was super helpful to me with some of the more traumatic aspects of Hugo's death. Yeah. Like reprocessing some of those memories, which I think you want to do with a trained practitioner. But yeah. Amazing. Definitely we'll link that app down below. I've heard really good things about tapping. It's not something I've implemented into my life yet, but I've only heard amazing things. And so you re-inspired me to reintroduce it. (laughs) Awesome. I love it so much. I bring in a tapping coach to my program once every two weeks. Like that's how much I love it. Gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. And to know because there's some of these ways of processing emotion that are recommended for kids and some that aren't. Mm -hmm. And it's good to know that this is one that can grow with you and you can implement if you have younger kids or even older kids. And it's also something they can do on their own. Because sometimes if it's hypnobreath work or something like that, it's a little more difficult to do on your own, especially as a child, where if you can teach something that they can self-regulate, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, exactly. And you can start it out really basic and then make it age appropriate Mm -hmm. so that they can grow with it, but it also doesn't need to overwhelm them. I love it when my clients teach their kids. It's really encouraging to hear how much more able they are to regulate themselves and calm themselves down when they need to. Yeah. Whether it was when times were heavier than they may be now or now, what are some ways that you bring more fun back into your life as a woman, as a mom in general? Yeah. Fun is actually something I've really had to work at, like truly gotten coached on it a lot of times because it. I tend to just be so focused on what I'm doing and working and I love what I do. I laugh a lot, so I have a lot of fun. But in terms of doing things outside of work, I have actually had to make it a priority for me. Like at one point I had do something fun, a cultural event once a quarter outside of the house and literally had to make it a goal. So just bringing it top of mind and kind of realizing, oh, there's actually not as much fun happening here as I would like for there to be. And then making it a priority and then setting a goal and following through is actually really helpful to me. I know that's not what everybody has to do, but yeah, I can. it's easy for me to just nose to the grindstone and not look up. Yeah. No, I think that's actually really common in this community. And once you've experienced something that shifts how you think about life, whether it's grief, it's you changing your career path, just really changing something about your life, you often perceive the people in your life a little bit differently. And it doesn't mean that you Mm -hmm. don't love them. They're maybe just not the people you're as excited to get you to your next step, your next journey. What are some of the ways that you've found more people to support you in the different seasons of life, whether it's when you stepped into coaching or post these all sorts of different things, post your first divorce, post the loss of your husband, Mm -hmm. different seasons of motherhood. How have you found people to support you, whether it's an actual human you're a friend with or it's a podcast you listen to that's supporting you? Yeah. The biggest thing for me that was totally unexpected was the community that I have found through coaching. I really did not anticipate that. When I decided to become a coach, I knew coaching was amazing and I was looking forward to training, but I never really thought that I would be coming into a community. And so that's really surprised me. Honestly, probably 90% of my friends now are coaches. That's who I hang with. That's who I talk to. And most of them don't live in the city near me. You know, we're Marco Poloing all the time. 
I just took a trip to Greece with a few coach friends and we just went and coached each other and worked on our businesses. I think the reason that has become such an important connection to me is because we're all interested in the same things and we all share very similar values. And so the conversations just flow. If I hadn't found them, hopefully I would have found somewhere something like that. Um, you know, but I would tell people like, don't stop until you find your people because they are out there. You just might find them in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything you've had to work on to be receiving of either that friendship, mm-hmm. the love of your new partner? It's so often we close ourselves off. And yeah. how do we allow ourselves to be receiving of love and friendship and partnership? Yeah. There was a point for me where I started to realize I had some opportunities here that I didn't know about. And that point was I crossed the seven-figure mark in my business and I bought a house, this house that I'm living in now. And it is in a neighborhood that I used to look at Christmas lights in when I was little. It's called the Pinnacle. And when I moved into this house and I crossed that mark in my business, it was really scary for me. And I couldn't figure out exactly what was happening, but I reached like an upper limit, a big leap, Gay Hendricks upper limit. It was like all of a sudden it was like, who do you think you are? I think you're getting a little too big for your britches. You don't really belong here. Are you sure everybody else here is a doctor or a lawyer and you're just a life coach? What's that about? You don't really belong. And, And what I realized, part of it was just some limiting beliefs that I had. Also, part of it was that the last time life had been really good, my body was remembering. That got ripped out from under me, Mm. and it almost didn't feel safe for it to be that good. It was like, oh, it's getting too good. The other shoe is probably going to drop. Is it safe? And so for me, since then, it's been this conscious creating safety for myself in the midst of uncertainty, right? Like just continuing to meet myself where I am and expanding my ability to nurture myself and support myself and let it be good. And I never would have thought that was going to be something I was working on, but it is. Yeah. It is hard sometimes to let it be good for me. And the work is never done, right? Whether it's with grief or just you as a human, like you don't become a life coach and then all of a sudden have all the answers. And also, I just want to congratulate you on that milestone of a seven-figure business because I don't know the statistic, but it's a small one of the number of women that reach that mark. So congratulations. We are super excited to celebrate that here on this podcast. And I would love for you to speak to something that I hear a lot in our community is, can I make a lot of money while helping people or am I doing something wrong? And I'm sure that's something that you've worked through. I know you've changed countless lives and you have been able to celebrate the work that is irreplaceable that you have done with a milestone for yourself. But what are some of the ways that you've worked through that? Or is it something you've struggled with? Oh, it has definitely been something I've struggled with. Pricing throughout my journey has been something I've struggled with, just the idea of charging versus doing it for free. So yeah, I think that's super normal and we don't want to make ourselves feel bad about it. It's totally common to have all sorts of money drama in our brain and you don't even have to completely resolve it to help a lot of people make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important too. It's not like you have to be in a totally abundant place. You can, as my friend Cara says, you can make a lot of money with a half-managed mind. But just really for me, it's always, okay, come back, Krista, come back to why you're doing this in the first place, right? And stop thinking about yourself and think more about who is that person that is 
right now really looking for you and really wanting you to get over this block that you have so that you can help her. And yeah, I still don't think sometimes I fully have let it soak in and fully understand the impact of that work, but I keep a little file called warm fuzzies yeah. of the nice things that people say. And I go back to that. Not nice things about me that people say, but things about their lives that have changed mm -hmm. as a result of having paid me for my help. Not just listening to my free podcast, but having paid me because there's a whole different level of transformation that somebody gets when they're actually in my container. Mm -hmm. And I just keep bringing myself back to that. And it's a weird, wild thing. Yeah. But it's amazing. And the ripple effect of it is, that's what I can't get over sometimes. Like, holy crap. Like the way that it just ripples into my clients' lives and their children's lives and their children's friends' lives. And Yeah, it truly changes the world because if moms are at the top of so many people's lives, right? If mom can't work through life and continue to work through life, then she can't support all the other people that are counting on her. And then the yeah. kids aren't supporting the other kids and everything else. Krista, the work you're doing is changing the world. And so thank you so much for pouring into our community and being here. We talked a little bit about your podcast. Let's go ahead and share that again. And then all the other places we can find you on Instagram and everything else. Yeah, the podcast is called The Widowed Mom Podcast. And I, I know that it is really specific. However, if you want to learn more about grief or you're interested in post-traumatic growth or you want to support someone, you know, definitely take a listen. And then also, if you are wondering if you're in the place where you are in a grief plateau, I created a quiz. It takes two minutes and you can go to coachingwithkrista.com forward slash grief plateau quiz and you can take that two minute quiz and then it will tell you if you're stuck in a grief plateau and we'll send you some resources that are free to help you. Amazing. And can that quiz be helpful for anyone that's experiencing any grief outside of being a widow? Absolutely. And a grief plateau is its just a frustrating place. And because I didn't have a term for it, that's why I find it so helpful to talk about because it yeah. can be really easy at that place to just stop and go, I guess this is as good as it gets, right? Instead of continuing. And so that's why I'm so passionate about it. But yeah, I would help anybody. You don't have to just be a widow. Amazing. And Krista, your children are 19 and 15 at this point. You are in this mm -hmm. beautiful new partnership. What are some goals that you have in life right now, whether it's in your business or your personal life? What are some things that you're excited about and working on? I'm excited about we're taking a trip to the Dominican Republic in oh. a couple of weeks, family vacation. So excited about that. My daughter just got back from Spain. She finished her freshman year and she spent the fall in Costa Rica and the spring in Spain. So just like hanging out with her a little bit and reconnecting since she's been gone for so long. My partner just started a new job, so we're navigating that, and his parents are potentially moving here from Arizona, so we're navigating that. So it's kind of like all hands on deck with family yeah. <laughs> at the moment. But as far as my goals go, I just want to keep helping more people and bringing more widows into the program. I love what I do. I wake up every day super excited to do it. It's just really fun and really powerful. So I just want more of the same, to be honest. Maybe a little more rest. Fridays are going to be free. I'm going to swim on Fridays and Ooh. sit at my pool. <laughs> That's my goal for the summer. That. Yeah. That's amazing. Krista, thank you so much for being here. If there was any piece of advice or love that you wanted to leave with our listeners today, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I would just say that however it is that you're feeling, whether you're grieving or not, however you're feeling is fine. It's not a problem to solve. 
It's just an experience to allow. And I think that's one of the main things that I wish somebody had taught me before I discovered life coaching was that feelings weren't problems and I could just let them flow through me. Grief or no grief, right? Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sometimes the smallest act of love is all a mom needs to feel reinvigorated. If you can relate to that, I'd feel so supported by your five-star rating and written review. Take a moment and let me know what you thought about this episode.